Well, it's good to see you again. We're doing our Sunday school lessons, and um, we are starting a new unit of study in John chapter 17. A few little uh, introductory things. I know we covered most of that last week, but just to remind you, um, whenever you go into uh, the Gospels and you hear what is typically the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, you know, who art in heaven, that type of thing, that's really not a good name for that prayer because Jesus never prayed that prayer. The disciples had asked Jesus, teach us to pray like John, uh, as John taught his disciples. And so he said, whenever you pray, pray in this manner. And so it was a model prayer, some people have called it. Um, I think uh, John MacArthur years ago did a study and wrote a book and he called it the Disciples Prayer. Well, that would be a little more accurate because that was what he was teaching them to pray. But there's no evidence that the Lord ever prayed that prayer. In fact, as much as the Lord Jesus prayed, I want you to think about how many times the words of his prayers are ever written down in Scripture. What was he saying? And occasionally there would be those Things that would make reference to the Lord, uh, like taking the uh, bread and the fish, and he broke it and blessed it, and then passed it out. But it doesn't actually tell us what he said. A few times when he, uh, for example, raised Lazarus from the dead, there's a very brief prayer that's there. But in John chapter 17, sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Christ, this is um, where his ministry as a priest, seems to begin just before the cross. And this is where he is uh, apparently within earshot of the disciples, and they are hearing him pray this prayer. This is in the garden. It's a whole lot more than uh, the brief prayer that you find in other Gospels. You know, let this cup pass and all of that. Uh, John records much more. In fact, it's uh, the the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And um, I think that as we get some insight into Jesus, we see his nature, his character. We learn some things. We saw last week that uh, the the prayer is the kind of prayer that uh, communicates. It teaches us some things about Jesus, his preexistence, and um, those types of things that, of course, are very important. Well, as we um, move on into this prayer, we find that um, Jesus prays about glory. And he asks the Lord to restore the glory to him that he had before the world was created. And so uh, he is praying about this. And uh, this is kind of a theme. God is interested in his glory. And uh, when you find the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's as if they spend their time glorifying one another. In John chapter 5, verses 41 and 44, Jesus talks about he receives his glory from God, not man. Now, that's interesting when we are commanded to give glory to the Lord. The Psalms are filled with commands to glorify the Lord or give him glory. 
But when Jesus says, I don't receive my glory from man, what he is saying is, I don't do things in order to be honored by man or to be pleasing to man. I don't do things for the uh, good words of, of man. I do what I do for the glory of the Father, and it's the Father that glorifies me. That was what was important to the Lord Jesus Christ. In um, John chapter 7, verse 18, he uh, indicates that whenever anyone seeks glory from man, you want to get the Pharisees to talk well, or the Sadducees to honor you, or you want to receive accolades from Herod or Pilate or anyone like that, um, John chapter 7, verse 18, he says that seeking glory from the wrong source leads to falsehood. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, think about a politician, uh, a politician who wants to be elected so badly that they will say or do anything and they will lie to your face in order to get your vote. Um, and then when they get caught or trapped, they have to lie again to cover up the lie that they did. I mean, we've all seen corruption like that that takes place. We've probably even seen it in our own families and seen it with people that we know and we love. Uh, whenever you seek to be honored at any cost by people, then that leads to lies. It leads to falsehood. And Jesus is making it clear. You can trust me. Because I'm not seeking anybody's favor. I'm not seeking to be the most popular man in Israel. I'm not seeking to have Roman blessing. I'm not seeking to have the Pharisaical blessing or anything. I'm here to glorify my Father and let the chips fall where they may. And he's telling us the truth. In John chapter 8, verse 50, and then also down in verse 54, John 8, 50 and 54... Jesus, um, his only concern was the glory of the Father, not himself, and not any earthly powers. And he um, talks about that when we get into uh, a little bit more of John chapter 17. This is one of those things in this prayer that is really consistent in uh, his desire. So... We talk a lot about how, <clears throat> excuse me, we are to be living for the glory of God. And we are supposed to glorify God in all that we do. And we get some insights here in this 17th chapter of John in Jesus' prayer about what that really means. So let's uh, do point number one. Living for the glory of God is going to be unselfish. You can't have selfishness and live for the glory of God. Those two things uh, don't mix and they don't go together. Listen to this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, the, the, the time has come. Glorify your son. And if he stopped right there, uh, we would kind of miss the point. But then he goes on and he says, a purpose clause, glorify your son. Why? That your son, Jesus, also may glorify you. So Jesus only had one reason to receive glory, and that was to 
give that glory to his father. And Jesus dying on the cross, we talk a lot about him dying for us and dying for our sin. And that is not wrong. But I think it also kind of falls short of what is really happening. Jesus is dying for his father. Jesus is dying to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. Jesus is dying to fulfill the Father's uh, desire for true justice. Jesus is dying so that the Father can extend mercy to sinners like you and me. And Jesus is dying at the will and at the demand and at the command and plan of the Father. And so whatever Jesus does, it is to spotlight the Father. And everything that Jesus does while he's on earth, he talks about things like this. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, Jesus is always spotlighting his Father. Now that's an interesting term too. This is what really upset some of the Jewish leaders that Jesus would dare to call God his Father. Now, you and I don't think about that a whole lot because we've been raised with the New Testament and we've been raised with the idea of even praying like Jesus taught us, our Father, which art in heaven. That's a a normal thing for us. We get that. We're glad we're part of the family of God. We sing about being in the family of God and that, of course, with the, uh, the fact that God is our Father. But if you go back in the Old Testament... I would challenge you to do a little research and do a little study. How many times did a Jew ever pray to their heavenly father? How many times did an Abraham or an Isaac or a Jacob or any of those people, how many times are they recorded addressing God as their father? It was kind of a foreign concept to them. Now, sometimes they might say that God is the father of Israel, but none of them actually would say God is my father. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he is a Jew steeped in the Jewish religion, fulfilling all of the Jewish religion and rituals perfectly with a perfect motive, he does all of that to the glory of God and has the audacity to say that he does it for the glory of his father. And oh, the Pharisees and others, that was just too much for them. That would push them over the edge. But you and I know that Jesus did come. And uh, as he came as the God-man, and uh, Mary was told, what is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, we get all of that, and we understand that as Jesus came to earth, he came to reveal the Father. The concept of, of glory, think about this. Whenever we talk about the glory of, oh, I don't know, a football team, the glory of a military figure, the glory of a holiday or something like that, uh, there's the idea of honor in all of that. We, we lift it up and we uh, spotlight it, and we do things that we normally would not do for the honor of that person, the honor of that event, the honor of that nation, for example. But also, glory sometimes reveals. We uh, think about the glory of the heavens and the glory of the stars when they come out at night. We think about something that 
maybe we are waiting for a political figure or a sports hero or something and then they come out and there's a blaze of glory or we see their talent or we see their ability maybe we hear them sing and we're just enthralled by the glory of the way that they sing or their athletic ability and we see the glory of all of that so glory honors glory reveals and also glory obeys so if we are going to honor the father and if jesus is going to glorify his father he does it by honoring his father which he certainly did he does it by revealing the father which he certainly did and he does it by obeying the father which is where we are in john 17 he is on his way to the cross and uh, well to his arrest and to humiliation and to the cross even to the point of death this is philippians chapter 2 right that tells us that the lord jesus were to have this mind in us which was also in him and uh, what did he do he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death and then paul just so we don't kind of think any death would do not just any death if jesus had died of a stroke or died of a heart attack or died of a donkey accident or anything like that redemption wouldn't have taken place even the death of the cross that horrible um, shameful type of death and because of that then god the father exalts jesus and gives him that name which is above every other name that as we know one day at the end of the age every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord here's the phrase to the glory of god the father so all of this is about the glory of god and so the holy spirit glorifies jesus and jesus glorifies the father and then jesus is asking the father to restore the glory that he had before he came to earth the glory that jesus wants and is praying for was something that he set aside and laid aside whenever he stepped out of heaven into mary's womb and the emptying that took place in all of that he didn't cease to be god but he laid aside the rights and the privileges that he might have as god and became a human being and did that for us but also for the glory of God the Father. Secondly, notice that uh, glory is the standard for success. You see, if we were to measure Jesus by purely human standards, he didn't do much. If we were to measure him by the things that we might measure ourselves or heroes or something by, he didn't do much, did he? In fact he was kind of obscure in many ways and uh, the only people that really seemed to care anything about him the bible says that the common people received him gladly well who cares about the common people the pharisees certainly didn't the sadducees really didn't the upper crust didn't care the royalty didn't care the romans didn't care i mean who who wants to be admired by the the riffraff and um when we think about Jesus and we think about what he did, did he build any buildings? Did he fight any wars? What happened? Did he overthrow the government? Did he lead a protest? 
Was there anything like that 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 took place? And there were some things, but they were really not all that big. And they really didn't impact the world, not while he was on earth. In fact, um, you think about the fact that when Jesus is born, shepherds testified, but nobody else cared. When you think about uh, the wise men when they came, well, that stirred up and that troubled Jerusalem, but it didn't really change anything. Herod lied when he said, go find the child so that I can worship him too. He really wanted to kill him. This is just a baby. We can get rid of this baby pretty easily. When you think about Jesus at the point of his death, how many followers did he really have? How many of his own disciples actually stayed with him? In fact, Jesus had told them over and over and over, I must go and I must be arrested and I must suffer and I must die and I will be raised from the dead. I mean, how many times does he have to say that? And yet we find that during the story, what happens? The disciples, well, Peter had uh, one moment where he pulls out his sword and, you know, tries to stand up for uh, uh, justice and what's going on I suppose you would say and Jesus said put away your sword you live by the sword you'll die by the sword and even Peter's act of defiance his act of uh, bravado there was actually a denial of the word of God if Jesus has told you I must go and I must suffer and I must die why are you opposing it in fact you remember that um, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give all of the speculation to people. People weren't really getting it. They thought he was Elijah. They thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. They didn't really get it and understand it. And Peter did. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And by the way, that's the way it always is. That's why you're saved. That's why you know anything. God revealed it to you. But it's right after that that Jesus talks about going to the cross and Peter stands between Jesus and the cross and says, over my dead body, basically. I mean, he is denying the word, standing against the word, rebelling against the plan of the Father. And he does that in the garden, even when he pulls out his sword. And Jesus says, put it away. And then what happens? The disciples scatter. Even his closest that were among him, they weren't really with him when he died. John shows up at the cross with Jesus' mother Mary, but that's really about it. And you know what's really sad? On that climatic day, the third day, when Jesus is raised from the dead, think about this. Wouldn't you expect Jesus' closest friends and followers to be excited, to be anticipating that day, and maybe even to be at the tomb when it happens? But they didn't really get it. They didn't really believe it. They didn't take it all that seriously. Obviously, they had heard it. They had heard it many times. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? We hear it over and over and over. We just don't take it seriously. And there Jesus is on the day that he is raised from the dead. 
And there's, none, there's no, none of his followers there. In fact, he has to spend time convincing them that he's not a, a ghost or some kind of a phantom or something like that. So when we look at the life of Jesus, if we were to measure his success, we can't really go and say, well, he was elected to office or he achieved this or anything like that. In fact, it kind of looks like a wasted life in some ways, which is the way the Jews would really point at Jesus. This is the Messiah. He died on a Roman cross. He died in shame. He died a criminal's death. Are you kidding me? That's not much of a Messiah. They didn't really get it. But if you change the standard and you say that the standard for success is not really how many followers you had, or how big um, the building you built was, and it's not really how much impact that you had politically or anything like that, but if the standard is to glorify the Father, then Jesus was the most successful person to ever walk upon the face of the earth. And it also means that you and I measure our success not by what people think of us, not by what we achieve, not by what we have, but by this standard. Have we glorified the Lord? Look at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. No disappointment, no regrets. Why? Because he did everything he was supposed to do by glorifying God the Father. He completed the assignment. He followed the orders that were given to him by his Father. His purpose for coming had been completed, and he completed it, and he did it well because it was done for the glory of God. All other measures, all other measures, fall short of the glory of God. Okay, think about it. They fall short of the glory of God. What is the definition of sin in the book of Romans? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it means that we use a different measure than God does. And God simply says to us, if you will glorify me, your life will count. I heard somebody say the other day, God did not call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. Okay, can I just say, if you are faithful, you are successful. Yes, he called you to be successful. The problem is we measure success in a different way. Now, could it be that if we focus on glorifying God, that maybe other things will follow? Maybe there will be great impact. Maybe there will be great numbers. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And It's not like everything is always in obscurity and if there's anything big, it's not of God. No, it's just that when Peter did that, he didn't go up there saying, how can we get all of these people to confess Christ? He just simply glorified God by preaching the gospel and God was glorified in saving all those people. And so uh, the book of Acts is just an amazing thing of the disciples carrying on what Jesus talks about in John chapter 17. All other measures will fail. So regardless of appearance and regardless of other people's opinion or of even popularity, if we live for the glory of God, genuinely live for the glory of God, 
That's the definition of success. And that's why Jesus was successful. That's why Paul could say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've finished the course. And I'm ready to be offered as a drink offering and receive the crown that is laid up for me and for all who love the Lord's appearing. I mean, how audacious is it to say something like that until you realize when the standard is the glory of God, Paul could say, that's how I live my life, in submission to the Lord and for his honor. Uh, Number three. I think that when we think about the glory of God, that's what keeps us focused. You ever notice how distracted we get? There's a lot of things to distract us nowadays. Life is not near as simple as it was in the time of Jesus. What did they do in the time of Jesus? Well, they didn't have smartphones. They didn't have movies. They didn't have television. They didn't have automobiles. They didn't have much entertainment or anything like that. So what was it? that uh, they did. It was basically live and exist and feed yourself and feed your family, defend yourself from um, intruders, that type of thing, and, um, you know, go through the seasons of life. And very little had changed in uh, Israel from earlier days, other than the different empires that were ruling over them. But day-to-day life was basically the same generation after generation after generation. Well, uh, they also, though, needed to be able to focus on one thing. Why do I get up in the morning? Jesus would say, I get up for the glory of God. That's why I spent time with God early in the morning. When Jesus would travel, why am I traveling? I'm doing this for the glory of God. I've got to share the word of God and reveal the Father in this village and in this village. And so he would travel. Why did he do his miracles? For the glory of God the Father. Everything focused upon that, which is the way we're supposed to be also. Notice it says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Think Jesus believed in election? And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, And they have believed that you sent me. You know what, Lord Jesus? Mission accomplished. And there he is focused upon this in everything that he does. What is he doing? Manifesting his name. Receiving his people. God gives him somebody like Peter. Peter was a difficult case. And the Lord Jesus didn't look at Peter and say, why couldn't I have somebody like the rich young ruler? Why couldn't I have somebody more famous? Why couldn't I have somebody with more pizzazz? Why couldn't I have somebody that would be more faithful and more consistent? No, he just received whomever the Lord gave him. And that's what we ought to do too. Romans chapter 14 says we are to receive or welcome the ones who are weak in the faith. We uh, sometimes kind of think, oh, if we could have some of the great athletes, if we could have some of the wealthy business people, if we could have celebrities, oh, what we could do for the Lord. No, you just have to do like Jesus. Receive the ones the Lord gives and love them. Notice here that Jesus talks about my disciples understand that everything that I do, my power, all of the things that you provide, they all come from you. 
We are to use the resources God has given us, not the worldly resources, not what other people think we have. We operate differently, using the Lord's resources, spreading his word. I gave them the word, and guess what? They received it. That's an amazing thing. That's how you got saved. You received the word of God, and you're still receiving the word of God. And we are to spread that word, and we're to believe the testimony of Christ, and we believe it not only at the point of salvation, but we continue to believe it and to understand more of it and to grow in that as we get to know our Lord and we live for his glory. And number four, whenever you live for the glory of God like Jesus did, you're going to take up the cross. It'll never fail. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to follow him. And the Bible says here, in verse 11, now I am no longer in the world. What's that mean? Because he's going to die. And because there are going to be those three days where the disciples are absolutely alone while Jesus is in the tomb. Now, yes, he does rise from the dead, and that's a wonderful and a glorious thing. But 40 days later, he ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Um, how does he, Jesus get back to that glory that he wants? How does that glory get restored? Well, you don't get the glory until you go to the cross. You don't get the crown until you bear the cross. And there's a principle in all of that for us. We want to take shortcuts. We want to avoid the suffering. We want to avoid the self-denial. We want to avoid the persecution. We want to avoid the hardship. And you just can't do that. If you're going to live for the glory of God, you've got to take up the cross. And you don't just do it for yourself because Jesus is taking up the cross for us, wasn't he? So this means we surrender to the Father's plan and we do it regardless of personal cost because we really don't have any rights and we do it to honor God and to benefit others. Honoring God, benefiting others. It sounds like the great commandment, doesn't it? Loving God with everything that we've got so that we honor him and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus is doing that when he went to the cross. Honoring God and benefiting others. So in conclusion, think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And that's in the context of Corinthian believers being involved in sexual immorality. Purify yourself. Keep yourself away from sexual immorality. Why? Because you're to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 7.23 You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't get into the trap of popularity. Don't get into the trap of trying to make everybody like you. Now, certainly don't live to make them hate you. Uh, use good manners. Be kind. All of those things that the Bible tells us. But understand this. It's the approval of God that you really want. Glorify and honor him, you were bought with a price. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's what Jesus is saying that he did his entire life, from his birth all the way to his death, burial, and resurrection, even his exaltation, even as he is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. What is he doing that for? 
for the glory of his father. And he prayed honestly and boldly and confidently, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. So as we look at this prayer and we think about aiming our life at the glory of God, are you successful? Are you a good Christian? Are you being what God wants you to be? Well, there's only one way to do that, and that is to aim at the glory of God. So may the Lord bless you, and may your week be filled with joy, with the power of God, with all kinds of opportunities, with fruitfulness and blessing, all because, like Jesus, you aimed your life at the glory of God. God bless you, and thank you for your time.